Well, today we're privileged to have Eugene Kwong as our guest preacher. And Eugene is the lead pastor at Sojourner Song Christian Church in Sunnyvale. And he spent several months with us in 217, worshiping with us, and has become a friend to many of us. And so we're privileged to have you here, Eugene, today. Well, he will share a message about how Jesus addresses our pervasive blindness to see who he is, and more importantly, how to understand his ways. So for the call to worship, he has chosen verses from Psalm 27. King David writes, one thing I have asked from the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me. Answer me. You have said, seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Amen. Our Father in heaven, as we look out into our world, we are overwhelmed with apocalyptic images of raging fires, fierce floods, hurricanes, unmasked terror, and a pandemic that refuses to go away. We confess to you that we are weary and we find it easy to lose heart, cave into despair and isolation. But today, we are here. By faith, we bow before you, our Father and Savior. We ask you to take the scales off our eyes, that we may see you secure on your throne as our creator and sovereign Lord. We affirm with the psalmist, you, O God, are our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. By faith, we give thanks that the suffering has stripped away our pride and self-sufficiency and brought to light the things that matter, truly matter. We marvel that we've been given the opportunity to look at our mortality in the mirror and to identify with the poor and the marginalized, the weak, the oppressed, the outcast, the refugees, and in so doing, receive a renewed vision of the nature of God who in Christ, by his suffering, reconciled to himself all things, making peace through the blood of the cross. Thank you that you surround us with favors, with a shield, and we are safe in your care. And we thank you that you made us to be a holy priesthood as we cry out to you in our pain and grief and brokenness. We know that's the way the kingdom of heaven comes to earth. As the psalmist writes, out of the mouth of nursing infants and toddlers, you laid a foundation of a strong bulwark to eliminate your foes and the avenger. As your people called to mediate the life of Christ to a world through prayer, we lift up your children in Kabul, Afghanistan, especially the women for whom there may be no tomorrow. We lift up those impacted by the fires, who've lost their homes, even within our own family, for the safety of the firemen and first responders, 
We pray you demonstrate your power and glory by controlling the wind and pour out your mercy upon us with rain. Give us rain, O Lord. And may you do so in such a way that you will get the glory of your presence. For those whose lives have been devastated by hurricanes and floods, we pray you'd comfort those who've lost everything but their lives and may see you bring resurrection in your son. And with schools back in session, we pray for the safety of students and teachers and for peace and calm to rule over parents and administrators. Thank you by your resurrection and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. You are making all things new. Thank you for pouring out the light of your love into our hearts, that we may display that light in every place. Fill us with your joy and peace of your spirit and make us a people without borders, a congregation that embraces all people, welcoming the foreigner and going out of our way to give the oppressed a voice. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, now turning to our scripture reading, Eugene has chosen 2 Corinthians 4 to set the stage for his text in the Gospel of Mark. If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who is the god of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. For God, who said, let there be light in darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, now would you give our, our guest Eugene a warm welcome, and he'll share the word with you. Would you join me in a word of prayer before we get into our message? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for creating the space for us, for opening your heart to us, for opening your word to us, God. God, we thank you, Lord, that you come to us in such grace, such affection, such mercy. God, we come to you as weak people, as broken people. We come to you beset with so many different weaknesses and brokennesses, God, but we know that you are the God who does not snuff out smoldering wicks, that does not break bruised reeds, Lord. So God, we come to you in vulnerability and honesty and surrender to you and to your word. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good morning, Peninsula Bible Church, Cupertino. I'd, <laughs> I'd really like to thank you uh, for inviting me to share with you from the word of God this morning. As Pastor Brian mentioned, my name is Eugene Kwan. And here is a picture of my family, <laughs> my wife, Hedin, uh, and my two sons, William and Theodore. Theodore is in the foreground just being himself with his Batman shirt. <laughs> so we're just very thankful to be invited here today, and I'm excited to share with you from the Word of God. I'd also like to thank the leadership of this church for keeping me in prayer as I've prepared for today. I really believe that the passage I'll be teaching from is one God placed on my heart in the weeks leading up to today, both to testify to the work that he's done in my life, as well as to encourage you all in the work that he is continuing to do in yours. So our passage this morning is Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. 
It is one with which I have a particularly strong personal connection. It concerns a healing that more than any other of Jesus' miracles has really captured my journey with the Lord for the past two years. And given everything that we all have endured since the beginning of 2020 and continue to endure, perhaps you also will find this passage resonant in your own life. So let's go ahead and not waste any more time and dive right into it. Our passage begins as many in the Gospels do, with Jesus arriving in a village and encountering a person with a problem. Verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Just another start to just another of Jesus' miracles, right? Well, not exactly, not quite. In the very next verse, Jesus took the first of six unusual actions that make this one of the strangest, most unexpected passages in the Gospel of Mark. In verse 23, we read that Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Now, that might not seem very unusual at first glance, but just look again with me. Why did Jesus lead the blind man out of the village before healing him? You know, why not heal him right then and there? Was it too crowded in the village? Was it too busy to perform a healing? And is, is that even a thing? Is that a thing for Jesus? Or was something else causing Jesus to delay? Maybe even, if we color it a bit, to hesitate, to buy time. I mean, this doesn't seem to fit the expected script. Why lead the blind man out of the village? This unusual action is immediately followed by a second, the middle of verse 23. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him. Now we know from other passages in the Gospels that Jesus could heal at range. Healing while social distancing would not have been a problem for him at all. So why did Jesus perform such a, shall we say, uh, such an intimate healing for this man? Why spit on his eyes and lay his hands on him? The laying on of hands, of course, is not too out of the ordinary, but what's with the spit? What an uncomfortable, to say the least, perhaps even humbling, certainly not socially distant way to do it. But even before we can process this unusual action, Jesus performed a third at the end of verse 23. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? Jesus asked for a status update from the blind man. Why? Was Jesus worried that his healing hadn't worked? Did he he need a customer review? Was Jesus feeling insecure? Was he worried his powers were fading? And he received really an unexpected answer in verse 24. And the blind man looked up and said, I see people but they look like trees walking. This isn't exactly the joyful celebration of the miraculously restored, is it? The man looked around and while he was no longer completely blind, he was not exactly eagle-eyed either. People appear to him as large, shapeless blobs, indistinguishable from a tree. And Jesus immediately fixed this apparent mistake. Verse 25, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Okay, all right, here we go. This is the Jesus that we recognize, isn't it? 
This is the Jesus that we are used to seeing, used to remembering, the Jesus who lays his hands on the blind and opens their eyes, fully restoring their sight so they can see everything clearly. But why didn't Jesus just do this the first time, like usual? Why did he need two tries? Our passage ends with the sixth and final unusual action from Jesus. He warned the now-seeing man to avoid everyone on his way home, perhaps to keep what happened a secret. Verse 26, and he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Go the long way. To summarize then, we see Jesus agreeing to heal a blind man, but choosing to do so away from the crowds. And we see him fail, apparently, in his first attempt. We see Jesus uncharacteristically asking how good of a job he did, and upon hearing an honest but negative review, we see Jesus having to try again for a second time. And after finally succeeding, we see Jesus wrapping it all up in secrecy. As far as healings go, this has to be one of the strangest, most unusual accounts in all four Gospels. So what's going on here? Why did Jesus seem to struggle to heal this blind man? Was he having an off day? Was he feeling a bit worn out? Were his divine power and authority starting to fizzle? Were they on the fritz? And equally concerning, is that why Jesus led the blind man out of the village? Is that why he didn't want him interacting with anyone on his way home? Was Jesus embarrassed? Was he ashamed? Was he covering something up? Taken on its own, Our passage neither confirms nor denies any of these possibilities. And as a result, our passage leaves us with more questions than when we started. But that is why we don't read the Bible outside of its own context. That's why we don't try to interpret passages of the Bible outside of their context. The meaning of any passage of Scripture can be fully understood only when it is taken in context when it is interpreted with an understanding of what came before the passage as well as what comes after it. This is arguably nowhere truer than it is in the Gospel of Mark, where the author frequently interrupted an ongoing narrative with a seemingly unrelated event, an event that, on reflection, actually helps the reader to better understand the narrative that it interrupts. I think of these unexpected events as interpretive interruptions. Our passage, Mark 8, 22 to 26, interrupts an ongoing narrative, in this case, a narrative concerning the spiritual blindness of Jesus' disciples. So let's zoom out and look at this narrative, beginning with what came before our passage. The narrative arc our passage interrupts actually begins at the end of chapter 6, where we see Jesus embarking on an historic stretch of ministry that affords us with some of our most beloved stories in the New Testament. For the sake of time, let me list for you the miracles Jesus performed between Mark 6.30 and Mark 8.10. First, Jesus fed the 5,000, and we should be clear, that number likely reflects only the men in the crowds present that day. Anywhere from 10 to 20,000 men, women, and children ate of the two fish and five loaves that day. Second, Jesus walked upon the waters of the Sea of Galilee. Just let that sink in, that he didn't sink. 
Jesus calmed the storm, assailing the disciples and their boat once he met them in, on the Sea of Galilee. And then, fourth, Jesus healed the sick of Gennesaret, some even with only the fringe of his garment. Fifth, Jesus healed from long distance, again, the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. Sixth, Jesus healed a deaf and mute man with a sigh that held all the pain of this broken world. And as the perfect bookend to this series of miracles, seventh, Jesus fed another gathering of people, numbering into thousands, if not tens of thousands, with just another handful of fish and loaves. So from Mark 6.30 to Mark 8.10 then, we see Jesus putting his power on display with miracles that testified to his identity as the divine son of God. But at the end of this historic series of signs, in Mark 8, 11 to 13, Jesus encountered some Pharisees, members of the religious leadership at the time who could not see what Jesus' signs revealed about who he was. They could not see the truth of who Jesus is. They, he, he did not fit their expectations for how the Christ would look, sound, or act. So they demanded that Jesus perform more signs and wonders to prove his identity as the Christ. Brushing off the Pharisees' faithless demands in Mark 8, 14 to 21, Jesus turned to his disciples and warned them not to fall into the same spiritual blindness. But, perhaps surprisingly, the disciples also failed to see what Jesus was talking about or to understand what he had revealed about himself through the signs. So Jesus asked them, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? In other words, disciples, are you also spiritually blind? This is the question literally hanging in the air when we arrive at our passage, Mark 8, 22 to 26, and in the paragraphs immediately following our passage, after they left Bethsaida, the disciples inadvertently answered Jesus' question in the affirmative. You see, after our passage, in Mark 8, 27 to 30, Jesus posed the most important question in the entire Gospel of Mark. Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, good old Peter, the leader of the disciples, gave the correct answer. You are the Christ, he said. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one, the long-awaited Davidic king chosen by God to redeem his people. And Jesus implicitly confirmed Peter's response. He implicitly confirmed his response with a warning not to tell anyone the truth of his identity, at least not yet. You see, at the time, among the people of Israel, there were deep misunderstandings regarding what the Christ would look, sound, and act like when he arrived. The vast majority of the people, including even their most educated and experienced scholars and leaders, like the Pharisees that we just saw a moment ago, they assumed that the Christ would arrive with the full might of his heavenly armies ready to take on the Romans or whoever else might be oppressing God's people. They expected the Christ to defeat all God's enemies and to reestablish God's kingdom as the unrivaled superpower of the world. 
When the people looked into the scriptures, they did not see the Christ as a suffering servant. They did not see the possibility of two visitations, of the overlap of this age with the age to come. They could not see the Christ sacrificing himself or surrendering his body to his enemies. Yet that is precisely what Jesus came to do. And Jesus did not want the truth of his identity to be revealed until he could do so with the cross fully in view, with the cross as an essential part of that identity. Jesus refused to allow his identity to be hijacked by human expectations for what the Christ would and should be. No, he would be the Christ as no one had conceived of the Christ. He would be a cross-bearing Christ, the suffering servant who atones for the sins of the many. And this is the truth that he immediately began to declare in Mark 8, 31 to 32. But Peter, again, good old Peter, shocked and dismayed by Jesus' declared intention to allow himself to be rejected by his people and executed by their leaders, Peter tried to force Jesus back into into this box of expectations. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, the scripture says. But Jesus, turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Jesus went on to declare that not only would he carry his cross, but any who would follow him, any who would be his disciple, would have to carry a cross of their own as well and live a life of self-denying love for others. And this brings us back to the questions Jesus asked the disciples before healing the blind man at Bethsaida. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts Hardened. Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? The question raised before our passage is answered in the events after our passage. Peter and the rest of the disciples did not yet perceive or understand, at least not clearly, not fully. They could see enough to recognize Jesus as the Christ, to be sure, but they could not see clearly enough to believe all Jesus had to say about what it meant for him to be the Christ. The eyes of their hearts had indeed been opened by the Holy Spirit, but only enough to begin their relationship with Jesus. They could not see the things that did not conform to their expectations. They weren't ready for the cross, either Jesus's or their own. And unless something changed, as Jesus had warned them, they would end up just as hardened, just as blinded as the Pharisees whose hollow religion could save absolutely no one. So it is right in the middle of this narrative about the disciples' partial blindness that we find Mark 8, 22 to 26. And it is in this context that the the healing finds its fullest meaning. Do you see it now, brothers and sisters? The healing of the blind man at Bethsaida is an illustration for the disciples' spiritual growth, or perhaps lack thereof, depending on if you're a half-empty, half-full kind of person. Just as the blind man had suffered in darkness, so the disciples were in the darkness of unbelief until Jesus came into their lives. 
And just as the blind man began to see after engaging with Jesus, however uncomfortably, so the disciples had begun to see the truth of who Jesus is. But just as the blind man's sight was only partially restored, so the disciples' spiritual understanding was limited, imperfect, and incomplete. Their spiritual sight was blurred with their human expectations of what the Christ should be, of what God should do for his people, and of the sort of lives God's people should be granted to live. Yet the healing of the blind man at Bethsaida implies more than just a disappointing diagnosis for the disciples. What was the turning point of the miracle? It was when the blind man opened his eyes after that first touch from Jesus He opened his eyes, he looked around himself, he looked at Jesus and admitted that he couldn't see very well. Jesus himself had drawn the confession out of the man, asking him, do you see anything? Is that all you needed from me? Do you want any more from me? Do you need any more of me? What do you see and what don't you see? When the man gave his confession, Jesus responded by completing his healing. And it was this completed healing that was literarily hanging in the air when Peter and the disciples proved their faith incomplete. Yes, their spiritual perception was blurry. Yes, they had set their eyes on the things of man and not on the things of God. But if they confessed their incompleteness, if they remained with Jesus in the secret place of honest, vulnerable intimacy, one day, their healing would be complete. If they allowed Jesus to continue touching their hearts, even when it felt like spit in their eye, even when it came as a rebuke to get behind him, to get back in line behind their Lord, then they would slowly but surely see more clearly. So you see, brothers and sisters, Jesus wasn't having an off day in Bethsaida. And there was no failure on his part that needed to be covered up. Jesus wasn't escaping the village to hide his inability to help the blind man. No, he was leading the blind man into his office, to his operating room as the great ophthalmologist of the heart. And the progressive, step-by-step nature of the blind, blind man's healing was an intentional illustration of the progressive, step-by-step nature of the disciples' sanctification of their journey from being people with their own ideas about the Christ and Christianity to becoming people who embrace the fullness of who Jesus was and is and forever will be and of what they must become in kind. Brothers and sisters, this morning, I believe that the Spirit of Christ is asking us the same question Jesus asked the blind man of Bethsaida. Do you see anything? How is your spiritual sight, brothers and sisters? Is there something you are struggling to see of Christ as the blind man struggled to see people clearly or as Peter struggled to see the purpose of the cross? Is there something God has said to you in prayer, perhaps, or something you have come across in his word that you are struggling to trust, struggling to believe, struggling to accept? Is there something you are experiencing circumstantially or something God has called you into that you are struggling to make sense of? Is there some area of your life where your faith feels incomplete, where it falls short, where doubt is actually gaining the upper hand or outright prevails? 
Is there something happening in your life that makes you want to question God or even rebuke him? Is there a cross, perhaps, that he is calling you to carry in self-denying love for others that you don't particularly want to? Well, if you're anything like me, you answered yes to at least one of those questions, if not all of them. We do see some things, don't we? We see that God is God and that Jesus is the Christ and that the Spirit is with us. We see enough to have begun this journey in the truth of the gospel and perhaps to even have been on it for quite a long time. But along the way, maybe we have encountered things, experienced things, endured things that are difficult for us to comprehend, much less integrate with our view of God. The past 18 or 20 months, for example, the last year and a half have left many of us realizing that our sight is not so clear as we might have thought, that our faith is not as mature as we had hoped, that our understanding of God and of his will and purpose for his glory and for our lives, that all this vision is far more limited than we had believed. Many of us found ourselves and perhaps still find ourselves groping about like the partially sighted man seeing but not clearly, disoriented, confused, and more than a little frustrated. And in our partial blindness, perhaps our groping hands have grabbed onto old sins and bad habits, toxic behaviors and destructive tendencies to things we thought we had conquered, to wounds we thought had been fully healed. Our passage today invites us to confront these admittedly painful truths about ourselves, but alongside this invitation, it offers us an encouragement, an exhortation, and a promise. The encouragement is simple. Sanctification is a process. And sometimes, the process of spiritual growth is excruciatingly slow. There may be some among us this morning who recognize their spiritual blindness, the immaturity of their faith, and, and they despair. They see the strongholds of unbelief and the pockets of rebellion on the landscape of their hearts and it grieves them. It fills them with sorrow and discouragement and anxiety. They wonder, why can't I be better than this? Why am I still struggling with this sin? Why do I feel so distant from God, so out of touch with him? And this line of thinking can quickly devolve into soul-aching doubt. Is my faith even real? Did I really meet Jesus? Or was I just fooling myself? Am I really a Christian if I'm growing so imperceptibly slowly? And is Christ really mighty to save? But our passage encourages us with the reminder that spiritual growth is slow. Sanctification does not happen in an instant. The Christian journey is not completed at the moment of conversion in one night of revival or even over the course of one mission trip, retreat, or season of growth. It isn't always helpful, therefore, to measure our progress in this journey in days or, or in weeks or even in months. And it isn't very accurate to assume that we will not regress at times, stumbling into bad habits and returning to faulty coping mechanisms from time to time. Spiritual growth is rarely smooth. It's usually very bumpy, and again, very excruciatingly slow. 
barring active rebellion against God or a refusal to repent and seek healing in a particular revealed part of your life, slowness and spiritual growth is nothing to be surprised at or dismayed by. It's normal. Sanctification involves progress over a lifetime, not perfection overnight. And in a world that demands perfection of us in so many ways, this can be a hard concept to embrace. But this is the word of grace that encourages us, not only in this passage, but all across the pages of scripture. But perhaps some of us are coming into this service, whether in person or online, with an entirely different attitude. To them, this passage offers an exhortation. Humble yourselves, for there is more for you to see. I say this with all humility, but perhaps some of us are coming to Mark 8, 22 to 26 with an attitude dangerously close to that of the Pharisees. Perhaps we are coming to God with a presumption of knowledge, with a presumption of understanding, with a presumption of spiritual sightedness based on a religion that has lost its connection with Jesus. Perhaps some of us have come to Christ believing we've seen it all. We come to Christ believing we've seen all there is to see of Jesus, all there is to see of the church and what it should be, of Christianity and what it could be. So like Peter, we stand on our perspective, even over against God, woefully unaware that our view of him does not quite match who he actually is in significant ways. And as much as I can identify with the previous group, it's actually really with this second group of people that I see myself more than any other. You see, brothers and sisters, I've spent much of my adult life believing that I had nothing left to discover about God, nothing left to explore about Jesus, nothing left to bring in line with the Spirit, nothing left about myself that needed to change, at least nothing really major, you know? From my youth, I was trained in the art of navigating church culture. I learned all the answers to all the questions in advance. I went to every service and event. I prayed daily, and I spent hours doing my devotionals every day after school, all before I got my driver's license. And there's nothing wrong with spiritual habits, of course. But I believed they were what I needed to do to prove to God that I had mastered this thing called Christianity and I was worthy of his love. Despite many attempts by many disciples to correct this misunderstanding, it really persisted in one form or another through college and into seminary and even into my first job as an official pastor hired by a congregation. And that's where my misunderstanding of God really became problematic. I became consumed with being the perfect pastor, with counseling my members perfectly, with teaching the perfect Bible studies, with picking the perfect songs to go with the perfect sermon. I believed this is what God wanted from me, what he demanded of me, and certainly what he deserved of me. And I believed that if I tried hard enough, I could achieve it. I could do it. I could give this to God, this perfect offering, and God would love Eugene Kwan. After pastoring this way for nearly five years and then bouncing from job to job for another two and even planting a church somehow, I ended up experiencing a nervous breakdown, which I'm sure comes as no surprise. (laughs) The evening of Sunday, July 21st, 2019, I started noticing blind spots literal ones in my own field of vision. 
I could see, but only partially. And this triggered a series of debilitating panic attacks that completely stripped me of all my so-called competency. With the help of my family, my therapist, several spiritual directors and mentors, a good community of believers around me, through them all, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, I began to see that my performance-oriented attitude towards God and all my relationships and the church itself, it all grew out of a deep sense of loneliness that had taken root in my childhood. I had been trying with all my might to soothe my pain through performing for people and for God, but after two and a half decades of exertion, my body, my eyes literally just finally gave out. You see, brothers and sisters, I thought I knew enough about God. I thought I saw him and his will for me clearly. And I could see some things, to be sure, enough to pastor others unbelievably in some manner, on some level. But it turns out that I was blind to God's love for me. I was blind to the sufficiency of Christ for me to the freedom the cross offers me, to the faithfulness of the Spirit in my life, to my belovedness, to to our belovedness before God in Jesus Christ as children bearing the spirit of adoption. It took blind spots for me to see that God had seen me first, that he had always seen me clearly, and even while seeing who I am, loves me anyway. And so I identify with those who think they know all there is to know, who think they can see all there is to see, I identify with them. But I also point to the words of our passage, which invite us to be humble and to meet Jesus in the secret place of genuine discipleship. Go to Jesus, brothers and sisters, away from prying eyes, away from the expectations of others, of our families, of our own egos to that secret place where we can be honest and admit without fear that we are imperfect, incomplete, and desperately in need of his touch, of his grace, of his life to flow into ours and to fill us with the fullness our so-called perfection could never grant. Ask Jesus, even, to show you your blindness and let him touch you, even spit in your eye if necessary, that you may be healed and see more clearly. And the promise of our passage is that we will. We will see more clearly. Whether we are dismayed at the slowness of our growth or just beginning to come into terms with the brokenness underneath our religiosity or somewhere in between, The promise is this. If you abide with Jesus in the secret place of intimate honesty, you will be healed. The eyes of your heart will be opened wider and you will see him more clearly. And seeing him more clearly, you will see his good, pleasing, and perfect will more deeply. Even if it means defying your expectations, challenging your worldview, overturning your paradigm, and carrying a cross of your own. So brothers and sisters, let us receive the touch of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us go to him, to the secret place, again and again, over and over, confessing our need of him and receiving his grace. Let us do this even now, right now, here, in this place, as we go into a time of gathering around the table of the Lord. 
At the invitation of PBCC's leadership, I would like to lead us in observing communion as the band returns to the stage. The meaning of communion is captured in the word itself. It is a ritual that gives us the opportunity to commune with one another as a community centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. Like a host inviting his friends to share a meal with him at his home, so Jesus has invited each of us to take a seat at his table, to come to him and to receive from him his mercy and his grace and his love. And just as a host's friends become connected to one another by virtue of their individual connections with their host, even if they have nothing else in common, so we, we together, find ourselves connected to one another because of Jesus. We commune as a community centered on him. And we may take communion in many ways, but this morning I'd like to lead you in two movements. First, we reaffirm our relationship with Jesus, his lordship over us, his love for us. Instead of leaving the village to the secret place, we come instead to his home, to his table. Second, we signify our fellowship with one another by partaking of the elements at the same time, as if breaking from the same loaf of bread and drinking from the same cup. Now, if you do not presently have a relationship with Jesus, then I invite you to reflect on what you experienced in today's service and on all that you might already know of Jesus. And maybe you still have some questions. And maybe you aren't ready to commit to a relationship with the Lord just yet. That's okay. You are welcome to take this time to think and to pray and to observe. But perhaps even though you still have questions, maybe you still have some lingering doubts and wondering about how this works with that and how these things fit together. But despite all this, you are nonetheless ready to begin a relationship with Jesus. Maybe he's already begun to heal your spiritual vision to allow you to see his goodness and his glory. If that is you and you know you want to follow him for the rest of your life, to continue receiving his touch, even if it comes with a cross to carry. If that's you, then I invite you to join with those who have already made this commitment to Christ in affirming that commitment in prayer. So wherever we may find ourselves this morning, let's take a few moments right where we are to think, to reflect, and to pray. Let's confess our sins. Let's confess the blind spots in our spiritual vision and let us ask Jesus for his merciful, gracious, and loving touch to heal our hearts. Let us reaffirm to Jesus our commitment to trusting him, even if we can't always see clearly where he is leading us. And this is the blood of Christ poured out for you in ratification of the new covenant. And now may the God who said, let there be light in darkness. Open our eyes and make his light shine in our hearts so we can know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Go in peace, brothers and sisters.